Welcome back to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. I'm Michaela Johnson. And I'm Caleb Haynes. And we're your guest co-hosts for season 10. We're here having conversations around creation care and what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. Over this season, we'll be chatting with scientists, theologians, and other Christians who are doing the work of Earth care in their specific context. So we hope that this will bear fruit for you and your ministry and your work in the world. Yeah, this is Caleb uh, Haynes, and I'm here with my friends Lori and Brenda Broughton. And we're in uh, the outskirts of Belden, California, uh, here on the edge of the mountains. And we've just had a wonderful uh, visit here. I'm, I've got the pleasure of staying with them um, at their place for a night. And we just had breakfast with some homemade barbecue sauce and applesauce and eggs from the from the the chickens around back and all the all the good things so i'm really excited to have a, a a little conversation here about creation care with some wonderful heroes in my book uh on uh within the church of the nazarene who's been thinking and and living out creation care for a lot longer than i have so it has been a privilege to stand on your shoulders and and uh, be a part of the, the stream that you've kept flowing here. And so thank you guys. So do you want to say hello? Let our listeners know you're alive Hi, this morning. Lori. Yeah. And Brenda. Hi. Wonderful. So uh, again, uh, uh, Brenda, I'll start with you. Got a little bio here for you. So you had your master's at Kansas University in Systematics and Ecology, a PhD at Tufts, on nutrition and biochemistry, is that right? Yes. And for more than 30 years, uh, Brenda taught courses in biology, chemistry, biochemistry, and environmental science at Eastern Nazarene College and uh, Framingham State University in Judson. Is that right? Yes. All the above. Right. All those things. Yes. Awesome. And didn't you also do work with, um, uh, what's their names in Michigan? Um, I'm losing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> A sovereign. Right. Okay. I, I thought so. I don't know why that's not on here. Yeah. And Laura, you got your MDiv from uh, NTS. Is that right? Yeah. And your PhD uh, in Boston. Is that correct? Okay. And you're an elder in the Church of the Nazarene and served pastoral roles for in four different congregations and taught biblical studies and religion and ecology courses at uh, Eastern Nazarene College as well and, and in Judson. Is that it? Okay. Yeah, anything else you want to throw in there? Father uh, and, and mother of two... Uh, uh, Wonderful middle-aged adults now. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we, we could... Do we need to edit that out? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, well, why don't we just start by... Uh, I would love to hear you guys just share with us uh, this, this morning or whatever time you're listening about why would you start and you could tell us maybe how you got here in in the outskirts of Belden, California. Maybe if you want to share anything about your homestead here and basically how you got quote here and doing quote this, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, well both of us were you know grew up in the sixties, so we were made acutely aware of environmental issues and uh kind of got onto the movement. And we have always tried to live sustainably uh, within our means mm. and lightly on creation. 
And in terms of how we ended up here, uh, I guess it was just our goal to live sustainably, and we also wanted uh, to um, host Pacific Crest Trail hikers. We live near the Pacific Crest Trail and um, runs from um, Mexico to Canada. And wow. Enough land to do a little bit of farming, which is mainly Brenda's bailiwick. She'll have more to say about that. Yeah. Um, I had read that uh, five acres, a family of four, should be able to live sustainably. So uh, it was an experiment to me um, to see how close to that we could come, um, given at least three of our five acres are non-arable land. (laughs) Um, But uh, the uh, proximity to home... Uh, not arable land because we're on the side of a mountain. Yes, basically. Yeah, cliffside that was eroded by um, hydraulic mining mm. in 1840s and 1850s. So uh, the challenge of restoring the fertility of the land that mm. I do have has been um, uh, a challenge, mm. and then um, providing a safe home for the local residents, the bear, the mountain lion, mm-hmm. the fox, uh, and yet being able to protect my crops from the deer mm-hmm. and the chickens, etc. The so balance. That, yes, the balance that yeah. uh, is required. So yeah. outsmarting chickens is my main job every day. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's That's beautiful. Yeah, do you leave any offerings of the the homemade sauces out there as like, you know? I I am free to experiment because I know if he won't eat it, the bear will. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe if we have time later, we can get back into the uh, mountain lion pee conversation that we had. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for another time, maybe. That's awesome. Well, beautiful. Yeah, so maybe let's peel back another layer and... um, I love to to hear uh, how you got here, I guess, within the Church of the Nazarene and a bit about your Nazarene history. I felt a, I called to the ministries in the early uh, 70s mm-hmm. and um, uh, prepared at Eastern Nazarene College and Nazarene Seminary and, uh, and then a call to teaching ministry. And so I ended mm-hmm. up in, at Boston University. Mm-hmm. Now, were your parent were your parents a part of the Church of the Nazarene, or is that was brought up Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, left the faith for years, and then and ended up in the, the Jesus movement in the early seventies, okay. which is when Brenda met me, and she was Church yeah. of the Nazarene, and I yeah. kind of married into Church of the Nazarene. Yeah, you converted him. Yeah, flirty fishing—that's what we call it. Yeah, yeah. The pastor said, you know, you're getting married in this church. Why don't you join our church? Oh, okay, I guess I can do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I yeah. ended up in a Nazarene school, and um, I, I did kind of fall in love with Wesleyan theology and, and later learned that Wesley had a very keen environmental sense. He had a couple of sermons on environmental issues, topics, one fully dedicated to to environmental, uh, mm. uh, the, the salvation of creation. Um, and, and, and essentially what we call the end times. Uh, mm. Had a, you know, a sermon where at one point he says, uh, 
you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he said, well, the reason they see God is because they see God in everything. You know, okay. all creation reveals the glory of God. And that's often missed by people who study Westlake. But mm, anyway, beautiful. took some of my earlier environmental awareness and, ben, you know, eventually ended up uh, teaching, feeling like, you know, I, I'm expected to publish and to do research. And what I saw as the biggest need was to help pastors understand that it's okay to talk about creation. You're not worshiping nature, which is what most of my generation were brought up with. We were brought up with, you know, early Karl Barth and with uh, the biblical theology movement, which basically taught us that when the Israel came into Canaan, the Canaanites were nature worshipers. And uh, the difference between the Old Testament faith and the Canaanite religion is they worship nature, their gods were about nature and Israel was all about history and God made all creation for us to use uh, to any extent. There's no really limits on how much we can use creation for. And so that's what my teachers were taught. And so that's what they taught my generation. And uh, pretty soon people begin to question that, but it takes a long time for it to filter down, yeah. you know, even to the teachers and to the laity, you know, yeah. so what people hear in the congregation is basically, you know, if you have a concern for creation, you're worshiping nature, or it's all going to be destroyed in the end, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, that's not the main topic. The main topic is to, to save souls. And so I begin to feel a call mm -hmm. to prepare ministers to preach in their congregations. You know, my students, I, I would bring this topic up of creation care. My students, I never heard that in my church. Yeah. Well, of course you didn't because your, your pastors weren't trained. So mm. I felt a call to prepare ministers, you know, to provide resources for ministers so that they would find out it's okay to talk about creation, mm. saving creation. And God loves creation. It's not that we're worshiping creation. God loves creation. God created creation, Yeah. <laughs> God wants to take care of creation. That's right. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was Calvin DeWitt at once once titled an article, um, "Loving Rembrandt but hating his paintings." And I thought that was a good analogy. You know, um, love God but hate his creation. You know, but, you know, creation's just here for us to to use up. So, and thankfully now there are a lot of resources out there. I mean, uh, they were just beginning in the '90s to to publish more resources on creation care. The evangelical wing of the church got on board with it. Church of the Nazarene is still kind of on the edge, not doing much except mm. for Nazarenes for creation care. Mm. But uh, uh, things have changed a lot. But, but th that's what I felt my, like my calling has been for the last 25 years is to be involved in creation care uh, mm. and publishing resources yeah, love on that. creation care. Love that. That's wonderful. I love that. There's so much in there, and I, I want to circle back to some of that. Uh, but I want to give Brenda a chance to sort of share uh, your Nazarene roots and and how you you ended up in the Church of the Nazarene. I am uh, probably fourth generation Nazarene, so um, it was understood that I'm go to um, Pasadena College mm -hmm. that I would I'm all following the faith, um, but. I think my I chose to uh, major in biology, and uh, the passion that steered 
my uh, professional life was probably established from the cradle because my mom is an artist and she saw the world intimately and taught me to do the same. So yes, I hear the trees talking. I hear the trees singing. Um, I hear the trees groaning. But it was a walk with my mom, um, probably well into my 40s. And as we were looking at the display of wildflowers, she turned to me and said, Shirley, God will not let us destroy this. Mom, what a profound theologian you are. Uh. Um, but she caught me at a very, uh, I will say, disillusioning time that uh, looking at the overwhelming population bomb, um, the prospect of catastrophic destruction in the environment, and uh, her faith that God is still in control. Kind of helped me recenter. And if, you know, my heart cries out, we need a savior. We're in way over our heads. But the only place we find hope is in this. Um, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's really good. Yeah. Um, let's let's maybe back up a couple um, a couple steps too. Uh, so one of one of your areas of teaching was in sort of ecology around there. Yeah. For I guess for the people for for the people in the back. Uh, maybe if you wouldn't mind giving just a, in your own words a brief definition of ecology and sort of your working sort of thought process there, and and then I suppose how how did you first get to connecting again sort of that with your faith and where did you know how does that springboard for you? That's it. Back in the um, late sixties, early seventies, we were just becoming aware of. Uh, say the petroleum crisis and standing in lines at the gas station to get uh, uh, five gallons worth of gas. Um, and, and that's the point at which I was taking ecology. It was very standard um, looking at plant succession and uh, the life cycle of algae kinds of things, minutia. But at that point, there really was no job opening for somebody with a degree in ecology. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a separate thing, um, isolated. And it was not until the 80s, 90s, where we began to see the environmental movement uh, encompass mm. ecology, sociology, uh, eat, uh, the economic system, uh, the rights of women, everything, all of a sudden there was this huge umbrella, the um, adequacy of our food supply. And so environmental science became uh, the 
a natural um, progression for me, mm. having uh, grown up in a healthy ecosystem uh, represented here and understanding way beyond anything that's in a textbook about the life cycle of an algae, how it all connects together. Um, and so the, um, the ability to then uh, incorporate, uh, we associated at Judson with the Asabo Institute, which is Christian ecologists, botanists, um, biologists of all kinds, chemists, and, um, and began to compare our um, disciplines Mm. and see that there is a commonality in desperately longing to, for the population to wake up and see we are in for more dangerous weather. Mm. Don't call it global warming, which is a mm. big mistake we made in the 80s, 90s, mm. um, because it, it began to uh, morph into a debate right, um, right but more dangerous weather there is no disagreement on that around the world mm. we got that mm. and um and so having like-minded peers who were experiencing this environmental movement um who shared uh, my my comprehension that this is way bigger than one person, mm -hmm. um, but that what matters, I will say this over and over again, is that we live sacramental lives. I cannot save the world, but I can pick up the trash in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I can live sustainably on like two acres um, as close as possible. Yeah. So my, um, my heart is clear between me and my God that I am doing everything that I can. And no, it is not enough that he will take my five loaves and two fish. And yeah, absolutely. I love that language that you're using of sacramental. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's a beautiful way to, um, to have this conversation. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. And, and um, when, when you think of a, a lifestyle being sacramental like this, what, what comes, what's there for you? Well, that's it. Um, I guess I would say, first of all, that every day is uh, worshiping in God's sanctuary, that I recognize it's all His. There's nothing that I do that is putting food on the table. It is an act of God. And so, um, to say plus is food, it's just bouncing to the iceberg, yeah. you know, mm. um, but it, it is that I, when I see the trash alongside the road, I'm tempted sometimes, well, that's a limited can, that's worth five cents to me. Um, but then I see a cigarette pack on the side of the road and I think, well, that's not worth anything, <laughs> but it's worth something to God. And I'll pick it up, pick it up but it in my recycle that yeah. um, my paper trash is over here and then yeah. going back into the soil to make a lasagna garden yeah. that uh, becomes uh, much more uh, fruitful mm. for everything that grows. So um, 
just, I guess, that awareness uh, at a fundamental level yeah. that we are, we are at the mercy of a loving God. Yeah. And how we, uh, the abundance we share with our neighbors. And they're not, they're not Christians, but they know we're our friends. Yeah. I, I would like to make a note that last night we had a beautiful meal, and one of the elements was a grilled cheese sandwich that was from homemade bread that was purple from because uh, it was parsley made from potato purple potatoes that you grew, and acorn quote yeah. cornmeal acorn meal yeah. that you collected uh, around here and 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 milled by hand. Uh, with a homemade contraption that Lori put together <laughs> that's sort of here. I wish I had a picture of it. Could put it. Just the most beautiful embodiment of, uh, you know, a place. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's such a, I mean, we talk about sacramental. I mean, uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. And so I love that. Um, yeah. So uh, Lori, you, you kind of, hinted on it uh, a minute ago, talking about uh, your calling, and uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to unpack that a little bit more about some, some ways that you uh, maybe have seen or experienced uh, why creation care is a difficult, or has been, or could be a difficult topic for Christians. I, I think the, the, the biggest pushback is, you know, we've all been taught that God is here to save souls. Mm. And uh, I still remember the, the first day of my theology class, uh, and I, the first, one of the first things out of Prof. Truesdale's mouth was, the Christianity is the most materialistic religion ever. And, you know, for me, materialism was something else. It was greed and, and, and but it just, it just sent me back, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And it, it, God's a creator. He created this earth, and uh, he cares about it. But we have somehow gotten off track, and we've gotten platonic. You know, we're basically a bunch of souls that need to be saved, and after death, we'll become souls that live a spiritual existence somewhere up in heaven. And so this earth really is just... It's, as the song, old hymn says, this earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Mm. And that's basically been the attitude. And they go back to Genesis 1 and, and uh, interpret that dominion as being exploiting creation. And that's, you know, one of the things I found out in my research is that that text wasn't used that way in that manner in extreme manner until the 1500s when people began to develop technology that would go further into the earth to mine further into the earth and further Mm -hmm. destroy the earth and there was some pushback among the church about you know we can't be disrupting god's creation like this and so they needed to find text to support it so genesis 1 uh let humans have dominion uh over the earth uh became sort of a proof text to allow the technical, technological revolution that was just beginning was um, Kim Rich Bacon. I think it was uh, Roger Bacon that, that mm. they brought that about. Wasn't Kevin? 
Kevin. <laughs> sorry, it's bad Kevin Bacon Jones. Sorry. Yeah, never mind. Scratch that. <laughs> Too much uh, bacon. Yeah, yeah. Turkey bacon. <laughs> but nice. Uh, but it just and and that's a con- It's a very convenient thing to live because basically our lifestyle is fueled by greed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fueled by you know we want to have everything we want. Okay. And, and yeah, our Catholic, you know, first world lifestyle particularly. Mm-hmm. But you know, we don't want to be told that we should have limits and that if we have too much we're going to affect somebody else in the world that's providing that at slave labor. And so we, we, we want to believe that we can do whatever we want, and it's okay with God. We can consume the creation and not going to make any difference anyway because God's going to destroy it in the end time. And we're going to heaven. There will, will be no more earth. And so this, the, 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 the pushback, I think, the natural human tendency to want more and then the idea that we can justify this by Scripture and the fact that this is what the church, as far as they know, have always been taught, what I've always been taught, we've always been taught. And, you know, I, I understand that. I, I, I had that same—I I, I still remember a moment at Eastern Nazarene College. I had a—you know, I was environmentally aware and, and you know, tr- still trying to do what I could, but— a course called Living Issues, and one of the books we read was um, um, The End of Affluence by, you know which one? Yeah. Google it. Yeah. End of Affluence. But it was along the lines of future shock. Several books came out at that time talking about how the population was going to eat up the world, and this was going to happen, and this was going to happen. I had just come out of the Jesus movement and was kind of reacting against that because it was all about the end of the world. God's going to destroy the world pretty soon. And I read that and thought, I don't want to believe this. And I, I, I had like big feeling. I, I, in my heart, I knew he was probably right in what he said. But in my gut, I didn't want to believe it. And so I turned in the paper. I should have gotten an F in it because it was totally emotional. King. And I, I said, this is nothing more than just secular apocalypticism. You know, the end of the world is coming. And I knew when I wrote that I'd, pop, I'd probably get graded down for it because it was all emotional, you know, not based on fact. And I think I got a B or an A off. I, I like, <laughs> the professor really blew it here. <laughs> but I understand the pushback. You know, we don't want to believe that what we're doing is affecting the, the, the planet and that we should step back and maybe have less and not expect to have what everybody else has and not to keep up to date and not throw that appliance away to get the, the, the better model. They just, it's just a lifestyle that we can justify through Scripture. Right. And, yeah, that, and so there's that, that pushback, and of course it's all, it's all the pushback is, is always couched in, well, you're worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. Which are you know there's a verse in Romans, the beginning of Romans, mm. and so there there is that huge pushback and and like a lot of things that people say they believe, it's you know we believe them because we want to, and then we find justification for it in the scripture. Mm. Yeah. So as Martin uh, Mark Twain said, you can prove anything you want to from the Bible, and some of it's even true. Uh, uh, um, you remind me that one of the um, I think key. Uh, barriers is our end of the world theology mm. that um, he has pointed out to me 
if you pray the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth. Don't put in a karma. Say it. Oh, wow. As it is in heaven. And the, the imagery in Revelation of Christ returning to his kingdom on earth as the king reigning. And the vision of Isaiah, that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. We are ignoring those scriptures. And is it possible that this sacred space will be the new earth right here? Yeah. I think that's one of the most powerful things that I, you know, noticed through scripture is how uh, what, when, when the language around heaven shows up, the language around earth always seems to follow. And there's this tandem dance throughout scripture, especially when we get in the gospels around heaven and earth and heaven and earth. And, and I think obviously, you know, guys like N.T. Wright sort of uh, talk about this, write about this really well, but that, that there's, this, there's this coming together uh, that, uh, right, that the kingdom of heaven has come near, uh, Jesus says, therefore go out, right, in Matthew 10, therefore go out, heal the sick, you know, and all the things, and enact and, and that kingdom now because these things are, these things are coming together and um, versus this, right, sort of flyaway gospel that, that we get stuck in sometimes, um, which um, we, could, we could go a lot of places on that. One, one yeah. You know, attack on the flyaway gospel is, you know, a lot of what, what feeds this is this idea, I think it's the first Thessalonians, we'll, we will meet the Lord in the air. Mm. And so the language there is the, when the emperor showed up at a Roman city, the delegation came out to meet the emperor. And after the delegation met the emperor, they didn't go back to Rome. They came back to the city. And so meeting the Lord in the air doesn't mean we're going to fly, fly away. Right. As it's yeah. been. God's coming down to the halfway yeah. point and we're, we're beaming I, up. No, oh, yeah. ushering, you know, the, the body of Christ is ushering the, our Lord and Savior back into the earth. Right. And, and that's a huge point to yeah. have. Yes, which is the fulfillment of the resurrection, the incarnation, the resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the left behind people all through Scripture, uh, the people that are taken away or exiled, those are the people that are punished. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, if you want to have a scriptural view of left behind, the people that stay uh, where they were are the people that are mm-hmm. in God's, you know, God's will. In God's will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it makes me... No, no, it, it makes me think. I'm tempted to go down the bunny trail, but <laughs> the the uh, the text that gets referenced. There's a DC Talk song about it back in the day about two men walking up a hill. One is left, and one is taken. Yeah, no, and we always want to interpret that the one who leaves goes with God rather than the one who stays. And I, and I always think about that sometimes. Yeah, and there's the, the, all through the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know, Old Testament is my area of study, but there's harvest imagery mm-hmm. about God's judgment, and the people that are harvested or taken away are always the people that are being mm-hmm. punished or removed. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, so uh, one thing I remember reading in 
So there's a, it's a, it's a hidden gem uh, within our tribe. But in 2005, uh, a, a creation care document was released through Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. Um, and it's linked on our uh, Nazarene's for Christian Care website if anybody wants to find it. And there's, there's a page just for that. And I think it just says 2005 NCM document on creation care or something like that. And, and I know that you, along with several others, did a good bit of work uh, writing in that document. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember one thing that really stood out to me in that is you talk about the Old Testament references of new and newness, and you talk about um, that with, with new moon, and that you highlight this idea that, this, that, that the word that's used for making all things new is the same word that we get new moon from, and, and so that, that there's this sort of God's work is actually renewing right because it actually isn't a new moon it's it's the same moon 28 days later and um so there's this sort of similar to sort of paul's language of reconcil- reconciling all things and uh rather than destroying uh kind of like we were talking about how old creation coming uh isn't sort of uh, or new creation isn't sort of made from scratch necessarily right sort of that idea yeah in, in the hebrew there was no Separate word for renew. It's just, you know, you say new, it could be new, or it could be renew. You know, so like when you buy a car, I got a new car. Well, it's new to me. It it's a used car, but it's, yeah. But yeah, it, 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 it new means renew. And um, that's a prime example of it. Yeah. I was, just rec- I was recently reading in the Apocrypha, Ben Sirach, or Sirach, or sometimes called Ecclesiasticus. The author, it was written in Greek and Hebrew, but the author actually makes that point, it's something being made new, and I think it has reference to creation, and he says it's, it says like the moon, it renews itself, is it, made new. So he actually uses that same yeah. example about the, the moon, saying, you know, this is what we mean by new. Mm. But I think in Greek there might be a word for renew, but a lot of times what the Greek did is it simply used the Greek translations that were used of the Old Testament, and they carried that biblical language, sort of like people using King James language in, in, the, in the church for years. Uh, so they would use the word that was used in the Septuagint, which was simply the word new. Mm, that's, that's great. The Greek, yeah. the Greek translation of the right. Old Testament. Yeah. Very awesome. Yeah, I, I love getting into that. I don't think, I mean, it's it's... This it really shouldn't be a surprise, should it? Because it's like this is sort of the fingerprint or the thumbprint and the DNA of all creation, right? I mean, I'm looking out now. There's there's things dying uh, around us all the time, uh, returning to the earth, right? Uh, adding nitrogen, adding soil, bringing new life forward, which then we harvest and eat and die and return to the earth. Right, it's sort of like baked into all of God's create. Like God created it this way, and uh, and and so how did we, you know? And it, which kind of goes back to what you're talking about earlier that we we hit a point and to continue living the way that we live and consuming the way that we consume and doing the things that we do, you know, either we've got to say okay, we're just, we're pagan, <laughs> or we've got to reinterpret uh, key scriptures about where we came from and what we're doing here. Uh, you know, and this is not something that, uh, that happened that, 
is was sinister, right? No one, uh, you know, this 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 is this is what happens over a long arc of time that you slip into and and realize that you're making these small little theological moves uh, that that all of a sudden you you turn around and look back and say, well, maybe we got off course somewhere. To 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 you know, are are we are we justifying our way of life by not squaring up here? Yeah, and that's a, a big issue. Yeah, you know, it, it's called hermeneutics and te- technical language. But but every age, you know, has a new set of circumstances, and it causes them to come back and look, reread the scriptures, and say, "Oh, I missed that," or because of my prejudices before, I was highlighting this scripture and thinking that it contradicted everything else. So hey, we've done that with slavery. Uh, you know, the, the people that justified slavery um, through scripture uh, with women's issues. Uh, you know, some of these things are not as cut and dried as we think they are. And so each age has to reread scripture. And, you know, as I, you know, one of, one of the things that, that, that set me on this course is when I was doing my, my dissertation studies, um, and this is probably not going to get widespread acceptance, it never has, but I was doing it on Hosea and trying to talk about fa- the family imagery, God as being a parent, as being the basis for the Israelite covenant, mm-hmm. and I couldn't make sense of it about God's relationship with the wife, what's this twofold imagery here? You know, there's the marriage imagery and the, and the parent-child imagery, and then I realized that the first verse of Hosea says, because the land has committed great boredom against me, mm-hmm. and it's land. The imagery is between God and the land, and then I began to see that's found elsewhere in the Bible. There's also the imagery of God and the city being the bride, and occasionally God and the people being the bride. But there is also an imagery of God being married to the land. And that was the favorite image of the Israelite farmer. And so, I mean, we're looking at Scripture now, and, and we realize, wait a minute, the Israelites were farmers. They had a very, most of the population were farmers. They had a very close connection to the land. And they depend upon God for the land, uh, for the produce. And they had a keen says if they mistreated creation, they wouldn't survive. Mm. They would not survive. And so, you know, maybe there's a lot more about God's concern about creation and how his people treat creation than we think. Mm. And the, I mean, the other part of that is, that, and I think you alluded to this, is that, and this language was used a lot in, by the early, when the, Evangelical environmental networks started, and early on when the evangelicals began to get on board, uh, the language of the rest of creation, making it clear, creation is not something outside of us. We are part of creation. And Wendell Berry made the same point. Wendell Berry is an agricultural writer. He was a great author, and he gave up his university teaching career to go back to the farm and write books, you know, many novels and essays. But uh, he he kind of left the church because he was disillusioned about the way the church viewed creation and nature. But he made the point, he says, you know, we, we talk about nature as if it's something out of the side of us, and we are nature. And he even talks about how sometimes we, t- we, we tend to romanticize nature, 
and we live in the city, and then we go get our nature fix, and then we come back to the city as if nature is out there, and then we've done our duty to nature, we've seen nature, and now we're, uh, we live our lives, consumer lives, separate from it. We need to quit that type of thinking no matter where we live, whether it's out in the middle of boonies like we live, or whether it's Nashville or Chicago or Boston, we are part of nature. And what we do impacts nature. Yeah. And we are the rest of creation. It's not creation out there. Mm. No, we are the rest of creation. Mm. I think anytime we start to segregate uh, creation like that, it does become a slippery slope. And, um, you know, we think about, uh, you know, obviously, so, you know, I live in Nashville and, and there's, there's, there's what we generally call like nature right quote unquote around but for the most part you're you're it's concrete and steel and rubber and all of the things but the temptation is to think of these things as something or objects that are outside of creation rather than also tethered with and part of all, all of that, right? And you know, is binary thinking. We we do the same thing with people, you know. And, and I talked about, you know, how what we do affects people someplace else. You know, there might be a, a a sweatshop in China or South America where goods are being produced, and 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 while they're taking the local resources away and and polluting the environment. But you know, if we think it binary, we're the good guys, and everybody else really don't don't matter. You know, it's 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 just human nature. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, mm. binary thinking is us and them. You mm. us out of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Man, there's so uh, there's so there's so much here. I feel like we could go all day on on some of this. Um, maybe what uh, getting back to sort of some practice. What has been maybe a big obstacle or a hard change that that's that's been for for you guys and your lifestyle in order to be more eco-friendly uh, well uh, uh, in general i guess in general terms and i'm going have a lot to say about this but i think realizing that no, no matter what we do we're going to participate in the system that destroys creation you know we're wearing clothes you know let's you know let's we get completely off the grid and just you know dug a hole somewhere and lived in it we're we're tied to a system that we can't get away from and so the the tension between okay i'm participating in this system do i just say well what's the use i'm going to destroy creation no matter what i do or do i say i just got to do what i can and make small changes Mm -hmm. and so overcoming the guilt about what i'm doing but not saying okay since i you know since I'm in for an inch, I might as well go on for a mile, you know, so. Uh, yeah, I think there's a temptation there to think about, uh, right, consumption as something that's inherently evil. And I, and I, I and obviously it's, it's not, right? If we don't consume, we, we die uh, because breakfast, uh, <laughs> right? Am I right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I, and I think sometimes when we talk about creation care or environmental justice, we get stuck thinking that there's a scorecard, and in order to win the game, I have to lose the game. And um, anyway, that's just- so yeah. Everything we 
do it, you know, involves the petroleum industry, you know, transport, mm. you know, that's sort of trying to, you know, grow more of our crops, you know, plastics, which are mm. becoming the major problem, polluting the environment. So, mm. but yeah, yeah, we, we are, we are c consuming creatures. I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think, well, Rolston Holmes said this, that, you know, we can either be profligate consumers or informed consumers. I don't think he is informed, but mm. it's been a long time since I've read yeah. it. But, you know, we can be bad consumers or good consumers. Absolutely. We can, you know, of, we can monitor our consumption, but the realization that no matter how mo we monitor it, we're still, it, some of it's participating in a system that's destroying creation. Mm. Uh, graduate study um, in nutrition, one of the uh, key points they drove home to me was that Americans vote with the dollar. And so um, the introduction of organic options at the grocery store um, blossomed in the 80s because American consumers were ready to get away from ALAR on their apples and um, curtail the use of pesticides, et cetera. So uh, the uh, hope is that we become concerned enough about where our food comes from mm. that we're willing to pay a higher price. Mm. But I was going to say one of the chief uh, factors for us in our lifestyle was poverty, mm. that we, we lived hand-to-mouth for a long time, and it was a, a major concern to me as a pastor's wife that I had maybe a jar of peanut butter and crackers if people showed up at my door and wanted a half tea. Yeah. I, was, I, I was just that close to the, uh, the bone, and um, uh, my granddaughter was here visiting a month ago. Now that we're retired, if I told her, honey, I want you to rest assured, we, we have enough money to supply our needs, but we choose to live this simple lifestyle. And uh, that's, that we never outgrew the awareness that if you've got a lug of peaches, then can them and put them up for the winter, you know, when the produce is in season, get it frozen, get it dried, get it canned. Mm. Um, and so the, the work of using the resources that are at our uh, disposal is a mindset that my children did not carry into their adult life. And certainly my granddaughter has no perspective yeah. on uh, that there's food that comes outside of the grocery store shelf. Well, to interrupt just a second, I think, you know, Americans live on borrowing for the future. You know, as a pastor, I, I would bury these young couples, and they already owned a house and new furniture, and, you know, we're in a parsonage, and we had all this stuff we pulled out of the, uh, off the road that people were set out of trash day or gave to us because they felt sorry for us. And, you know, loans that go in the future, and so I think it's... Mm -hmm. Climate change is we're living off the future. You know, we're taking resources that God meant for the future and we're consuming them right now. And it's also causing a backlash in what it does to the, you know, the creation wasn't meant to absorb this much pollution at once. It was meant to 
go gradually over the, you know, and so we're buying from the future and destroying the future. Yeah. Yeah. The, the irony really is uh, how, how hard it is because of how easy culture has made it. Yeah. And, um, and when, you know, when I can just go through the drive-thru, not get out of my car, click a button on my phone, it shows up at my doorstep or all of these things. Of course, I'm not canning peaches, right? Unless I'm, unless I'm very intentional of, about that. And, um, you, know, so, so, you know, a lot of creation care when we talk about very tangible items is just, is just an amalgam of, of many different little, quote, easy things. But sometimes the easiest things are the easiest things to forget or not do because they're the easy things. And, uh, and, and what does it mean to sort of integrate these little green habits into our lives to a point that they become just part of who we are? Uh, and I think that's when it really gets good. It's like, you're not, you're not canning peaches at this point as something that's like, oh, yeah, no, like this is just something that you enjoy and it's part of living in your place and it's part of, yeah. it's part of e- eating this winter and, um, anyway. living sacramentally. Living sacramentally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. Also, it helps for um, this person. Um, I had a Dust Bowl Oki dad who they lost the farm through nothing that they had done individually. It was a corporate sin that caused the Dust Bowl. And so they came to Bakersfield Lamont and did the Greeks wrath thing right down the line. Um, and my mother's story, very similar, just cardboard in the soles of their shoes, dresses, and underwear made out of flower sacks. So the, uh, the mindset that I grew up with, with those stories behind me, are very different than mm. the stories that are passed on to my granddaughter mm. of, uh, yeah, let's go to Walmart. Right. And we don't go to Walmart. Mm. Yeah. We could have a conversation yeah, about, about Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> and I think part of the problem is, is I have to remind myself is we've created a culture that it's, it's practically impossible to can stuff and that kind of thing because it's necessary to have two working people in the household to even pay your rent or your mortgage mm-hmm. and to pay the groceries. And so we have made a culture and, you know, expectations. Uh, of course, I always think, you know, people could live on less if they really tried. You're an example. And, but we've made a culture where this is what's expected and there's no extra time to do things that will be less convenient, that will take more time. And, and, and cost a little more money because it will save creation. So it's a culture and things. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a long sight. And that's the lens that we've got to put on uh, more than ever. Um, so I, I, especially people living in poverty, I think, you know, they're, I, I think, you know, I can't, I can't condemn them for, you know, the, all the frozen foods they're buying and everything else. So they don't, they can't. They, they probably don't even have a car. I mean, right. they're living hand to mouth, and what else yeah. can they do? So, w- taking that, I guess, and trying to turn a corner, and we'll try to land this plane here, but um, thinking about 
advice perhaps for the pastor out there or the church out there who who wants to in, engage in this conversation in this work more what what would you know what's something you might say to them uh you know uh thinking about you know obviously there's lots of different contexts but maybe just some words of advice that that you know co- comes to you um I think, it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm looking at the theological side and, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the resistance. And uh, I think it, people, pastors, especially have a resistant, typical, you know, consumer-minded congregation, you know, maybe a series on what God says about creation. You know, maybe have some Bible studies about using different things written about creation care. And then, you know, what we can do practically in the church, you know, small garden. But it, it just, it, it's, it's, it's such a, it's become politicized. And, of course, as soon as some of these topics are brought up, it's thinking, oh, you're, you, you represent the other party that I don't, I'm not in line with. Yeah, politics. And so, and so mm. uh, politics has become so caught up with religion that sometimes one's political party is seen as, yeah. as part yeah. of their religion. It's, you know, what God wants. And so wow. it has to be taken very carefully and slowly, I think. And, yeah. I, and, that, but, but I think being an example, too, you know, just trying to, you know, we haven't convinced a lot of people that, that we know, but people know mm. how we live. You know, sometimes they shake their head, and so they've really gone off the deep end. Yeah, and they they they, they bring to our attention anything that they see as an inconsistency. Oh, you're doing this, you're doing right. that. Yeah, mm. we um, in dealing with um, educating uh, college students, it, I would always start my classes with: we have to know what God loves, so that we can love what God loves. So we can do what God loves. And so a big component of my environmental classes would be to begin to know your neighbors are. Mm. And I was working in the farmland of the outskirts of Chicago. And how many of you have grandma and grandpas that are living on farms? And most of the class had raised their their hands, and then I would ask them, and how do you feel about being in the wilderness? I'm afraid. And so this terrible disconnect between our roots and our lifestyles in this new generation um, has, we should have an aching homesickness inside of all of us for our connection to the earth. Yeah, one of the things that we did in, in, where I was going to Bethel, uh, we were going to Bethel in, in uh, Quincy area, Quincy, Massachusetts. We got Quincy, California here. But we had an event, we call it an adventure club, where we did uh, monthly hikes and got into the creation. And we tried, to, we tried to do some devotional studies, praying, reading the Psalms that you know, glorify the Creator. And uh, sort of, sort of made it, and in, in, in terms of uh, nature spirituality, this is something we can do to connect with God's creation, and mm-hmm. that's how we build it, you know. And community. Yeah, and mm-hmm. community. So, uh, love that. Yeah, love that. Um, 
is uh what what maybe hopes uh do you have particularly for the church of the nazarene you know for uh what would you i guess uh you know in brief or long however you want to do it would you love to see change or happen along this this uh, let the revolution begin with you and go baby go (laughs) yeah yes we may have just created a bumper sticker (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, I think it's going to be a slow movement, but you know, it's it's there's always been sort of a disconnect in the Church of the Nazarene between some of the laity and and and, and some of the more educated. I I would say uh, it's it didn't start that way. You know, it started with Brazil and uh, concern for the socially marginalized. I'm convinced that Brazil were alive today, he would see the connection between how we treat creation and how we treat people. Mm. Uh, but somewhere over the line, you know, over the years that got disconnected and, uh, you know, getting back to our roots. But then then you go to a church in Nazarene today and most people don't even know they're part of the Nazarene denomination or what it is or what Wesleyanism is. And as our conversation went the other day, most people are Calvinists, which is often more easily connected with the idea of, destruction of the earth and not necessarily but mm. but uh i think it's it's going to have to be people living what they preach and trying to introduce as best they can in local congregations uh what they can do to live more lightly as a church and sometimes it does save money you know putting mm-hmm. solar panels and you know that might have been yeah. How it starts. Right. You know, one of the first thing I did as pastor is had curtains put in the sanctuary. The old stained windows were letting in so much cold air. And there's resistance about doing that. And the first Sunday after we put them in there, you know, in the middle of winter when it was like 15 degrees outside, so we go, oh, wow, it's warm in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes a big difference. That's right. That's right. You can do something else with that money. Yeah. Yeah. The but but it, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, the church and the denomination as well. I don't know where we're going. I, mm-hmm. I I hope that that you know that modified thing on creation care will get uh, mm. passed and it will get passed e. in a full form and not like the first time we tried and only something completely different got in there. Right. But as one of my colleagues said uh, when I told him, all excited like 25 years ago when we first. So doing this, I said, we're, we're getting a, a thing about creation care in the manual. And he said, so they're going to pay attention to that like they do everything else in the manual? And that, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, Touche. And the two said, window, I said yeah, but, small steps. You know, people aren't going to go through the manual and say, okay, what does it say about creation care? Oh, well, this is what I have to believe. But what it does do is it gives permission for pastors and lay people to say, I am in line mm. with the Church of the Nazarene. And if you're talking about something that contradicts this, then I'm the one that's in line. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so at yeah. least there's that. I mean, yeah. something that, that, that the pastors who yeah. are ecologically, and I, I will say that, as Brenda said, all my, my classes, I integrated, you know, Bible classes, some creation thing. It always, you know, came down to, crea- you know, what God thinks about creation. 
And so I'm hoping there's some pastors out there who aren't afraid to preach about creation and it's starting to affect some people in the pews. But I also know there's a lot of pastors who realize I can't say this, I can't say that, or I'll be looking for a job in a denomination. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. But, well, thank you for sharing that. I think that whew, this, is, uh, this is just really good. One last question. Uh, what, uh, what, what do you love most about God's creation? If you could pick, and I don't, I usually don't like to ask ultimate questions like that, but if you could pick something that you, it doesn't have to be the most, I guess, it's something you really enjoy about God's creation. Uh, the first word that comes to my mind is change, that I am a curious observer, mm-hmm. and life is never dull, and that I can walk out of my door every day and discover a new delight. And I can understand how God takes delight in his creation because it's right there at my doorstep every day. Mm. I'm on that. I love that. Sometimes change is hard Mm. to deal with, um, but I have to take it in balance. Yeah, absolutely. That was deep. I think I was just going to say coffee, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I yeah, I think the, the serenity and the peace. I, I I remember, you know, when we we did a lot of long distance hiking in the in the 1990s. Did a long trail, Appalachian Trail, and we had very busy, stressful lives. And we get out there, you know, and we had to move mountains literally just to get ready to get out into creation. I mean, into the quote. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, it would only take about five minutes before. This is where I belong, mm-hmm. you know, to, to realize this is really creation is what we're a part of. And, and then to see, you know, the peace, the, uh, uh, the tranquility, uh, the life cycle, seeing new trees sprout up where old trees have died and, and are decaying. And the song of the thrush was the double-throated syrinx. It's an it's a eerie sound, but every time we go into the woods, wow. there it was to meet us. Wow. You gotta hear it. But again, you know, we're getting the with the, the disconnect between the nature yeah. of us and yeah. as you know, yeah. but I think I do think that is needed by everybody just to remind them that this isn't something separate. This is who we are. You know, so if we would take that back back to our urban suburban setting, you know, that would mm. renew and refresh us and remind us who we were. Mm. And so easy to, to lose track of we're God's creatures, and God's creation is wonderful, and we're part of this. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, let me just say, this has been the best conversation I've had in a long time, so I was so thankful for the two of you sitting down with me at your table here and hosting me. I think we're going to end this and maybe go for a walk in the snow or uh, something that's already happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, at least. So thank you guys so much. Okay. You're welcome. Good to be here. Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.